1 Samuel chapter 22, beginning at verse 6. 1 Samuel chapter 22, and beginning at verse 6. Let me just get there. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, hear now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he is risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. And Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let the king impute anything to his servant, or let him not impute anything to his servant, or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day 85 persons who who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both men and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew that on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. 
Lord, help us today as we consider the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that as you have revealed your word, it is not something that is sanitized, but Lord, there is a rawness to it that can make us angry, can reveal the depths to which man will will go in their rebellion against you. But Lord, in the midst of all that, we also see your hand of mercy and grace. And Lord, you are honest with us. There's a reality to your word that is healthy for us to ponder and to consider because Lord, it's so easy for us to live a life that is somewhat of a facade and a a shallow veneer. And Lord, we, we know that you know the reality of our hearts. And so Lord, we thank you for making it plain in your word, for warning us, for counseling us, for guiding us, for comforting us. Help us today, Lord, to be humble, te- humble listeners and allow me, Lord, simply to be a faithful messenger of yours so that your truth and your word would come through and your Holy Spirit would have his way. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. The degeneration of Saul is painted for us through the book of 1 Samuel. It's a staggering story, isn't it? To see a man who was chosen by the people, affirmed by God because of the rebellion of the people, and yet with all the privilege of his stature, he still wouldn't listen to the instructions of God. Oh, he would listen to them partially, but he wouldn't listen to them completely. He wanted to do things his own way. And then, of course, as God turns the tide, so to speak, and gives him consequence for his rebellion and tells him that there's going to be another one, a neighbor of his, that is going to rise up and be the leader of Israel, Saul and his attitude just turns even worse. Now, he may not have known it at first, but there was a young man by the name of David who began to rise up through the ranks, so to speak, and he he kind of came on the scene in this glorious way when no one would face up with Goliath, the the champion of the Philistines. And, And yet David, knowing that the Spirit of God was with him, knowing that it was right to stand in the face of this mocker of the God of Israel, was willing to put his life on the line and did so with great skill and with strength from God and defeated Goliath. And, and Saul, of course, is, is happy that the Philistines are defeated. But then begins this story of, of David actually being successful in battle, going out and doing what Saul has told him, told him to do, and yet David is the one that's getting the accolades, not Saul. And part of the responsibility of leadership is allowing other people to do work on behalf of the leadership and giving credit where credit is due. And part of good leadership means you're doing that. But that also reflects on that leadership. And so when that leadership then begins to get jealous of those that he has asked to take on those responsibilities, you know something is happening in the heart of that individual. And so Saul then begins to pursue in his heart killing David, if you remember that, in his thoughts, this is chapter 19, And then it moves to his servants where he's given some private information to them about his desire to kill David. But then the last chapter we saw, this is public news now. Saul 
desires to kill David. He is out to get him. And as this progresses, you see the rawness of Saul's heart on display. And as we come to our passage today, what was hidden in Saul's heart has now become the heartbeat of Saul's kingly rule. So we come to chapter 22 and we're shocked that Saul can stoop so low as to murder 85 priests and wipe out a village. Now we know as we read the story, it wasn't Saul that physically did that, it was Doeg that did that, but it was Saul who gave the command. So it's not that Saul simply opposed David, he is now passionately opposed to David and to anyone who is a follower of David and ultimately to David's God. And at this point in time, it's clear that Saul sees that David is this one that God has raised up, who is this neighbor. And he knows what God says, but he does not want to listen. And he does not want what God has said is going to happen to happen. And so he's fighting now against God. You see, Saul is an antichrist. I would invite you to get your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. I became a believer in the 80s. And during that time, people were you know, coming up with all these different ideas as to who the Antichrist was. The most popular one was Gorbachev, right? For those of that era. You know, people were adding letters and numbers that were meaning symbols and all this kind of stuff, and somehow Gorbachev just kept on coming out. He was the Antichrist, right? And, and there's a sense in which we recognize that there is a future Antichrist that is yet to be revealed, um, but we need to be thinking through that because he's not the only Antichrist. And let's just think through this passage of Scripture. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Listen to what John warns. Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. There is, let's put it this way, there is an Antichrist with a big A. He's the future Antichrist. He is the one that is going to come, and he is going to set himself up against God in the last days, all right? He is the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. He is the little horn in Daniel 7. He is the beast out of the sea in Revelation 13. This is the Antichrist, he is future. And we need to pay attention to what scripture says about him, but we, we must not be fixated on him. It's all part of the future plan and yet, some of that future plan is somewhat nebulous. He's coming. We have some details about that coming. But we want to be careful that we're not just consumed with his coming. We're more consumed about someone else's coming, right? <laughs> and, and we're not really worried about the Antichrist because we know that the other person who's coming, Jesus himself, is, is going to deal with him, right? But he is a, going to be a present menace for the future of the church and this world down the road. But there are also these little antichrists, or antichrists with a little a. And over the course of history, there have been many antichrists who have prefigured the full embodiment of the coming antichrist. And they're marked by two things. 
um, opposition to Christ and uh, this word, I should say, Antichrist, refers to being, being opposed to Christ and ultimately wanting to be a substitute for Christ. So the Antichrist is not just coming to defeat. The Antichrist is coming to defeat to take the place of. All right? Now, there are two main strategies that they use. So this is how we can recognize them. First of all, by their, by their teaching, particularly by their false teaching. 1 John 2, 22 through 23 says this. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so they don't confess Jesus as the Messiah. Now, just want to be clarification here. It doesn't mean that they can't say the words. Because they can be deceitful. But ultimately, they are not confessing Jesus as the Messiah, as he is revealed in the word of God. They deny that God is the Father and that Jesus is the Son of God. So some of the examples we have today would be the Unitarian Church, which basically believe what you want, and we have some kind of religious experience. You probably have had Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door that deny the deity of Christ and so on. This is prevalent even in our context. Those are all antichrists. They are opposing the, 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 the God that is revealed in the word of God. There's also an example of non-Christians that uh, have this, the same kind of veneer, but it's Islam that denies the deity of Christ, denies the Trinity. Okay? So this is, this, is, this is prevalent even in our present day context. There's false teaching, but there's also not only false teaching, one of the other methodologies is uh, their conflict with God and ultimately their conflict with God's people. So they desire to crush the people of God. They desire to make war with the followers of Christ. And it's this second aspect of the nature of these antichrists with a little a that we see on display for us here in chapter 22. See, Saul is opposed to God. He is opposed to David. And he's opposed to anyone who is a follower of David. He is in a long line of antichrists through the ages who have been opposed to God. But, here's the good news. In the New Testament, we see Jesus as the Messiah with a big M. In the Old Testament, we see David as Israel's Messiah with a little M. He is He's a Messiah, which means he is an anointed one, right? He has been anointed. He is the foreshadowing figure of Christ who is yet to come. And so in the Old Testament, David um, prefigured Christ. When Jesus came, there were many who denied that he was the Messiah, and they opposed him. They actually wanted to kill him. They sought to murder him. You think about the Pharisees and the Gospels. At every turn, once they figured out what he was saying, they're trying to get rid of him. They're trying to put him in jail. They're trying to arrest him. They're trying to get him to be put to death. They're driving that ship, so to speak, to get Jesus to a cross and to die. And when he's up there, what are they doing? They're mocking him and they're smug, not knowing that they are the very agents of God's plan. So in the same way, when David is anointed as God's Messiah, 
with a little a and a little m, there were those who were opposing him. And we see that in particular through Saul and those who were working for Saul. But there are also followers of David. And we've seen one of them in particular, his name is Jonathan, who believed in David, actually affirmed the reality that, yes, David, I'm, I'm aligning myself with you, not with my father. When it comes down to it, my loyalty is with you. Okay? But we also see his, his friendship with this motley crew of 400 men who showed up at the cave at Agilum. And they were, I mean, they were just a, a, a kind of the, the outcasts of society, but God took those outcasts and will grow them yet to be David's mighty men. It's an incredible reality of what God is doing here in this story. So as we turn to our text today, we'll see Saul not as the mighty king of Israel, but as an antichrist seeking to oppose both God and any of his followers. And as we begin reading, we're reminded that Saul was still in pursuit of David. Look at verse six now. Now Saul heard that David was discovered. He's been trying to find him. This is good news for him and the men who are with him. And at this point of the story, we find now this pursuit. And in this pursuit, it's a story of butchery and evil, but ultimately grace. It's a story that is an ugly story, but it shines the glorious gospel brighter. And so I, I wanna just think through a little bit, what is the theme of our text for us today? And I wanna, I wanna say it this way. In 1 Samuel 22 in particular, we're gonna, see, um, we're gonna see here four marks of Saul, the Antichrist, as he opposes God and the people of God. And I think you could probably take the way he responds as an antichrist to the people of God and to David as a, uh, I want to say, the kind of ingredients that antichrist will actually have. We'll see this in all sorts of different people throughout history. If you look back, you'll see some of these same ingredients. But that may be true. That is on display for us to see is Saul and, and his attitude and his behavior and the marks of the antichrist. But there's also an aim for us there's a goal for us, there's an end game, so to speak, as God's children who are reading this, not just to say, okay, this is how the Antichrist work, but I think secondly here, for God's children who are living under the oppression of, of an Antichrist to trust in both God's sovereignty and his steadfast love. I wanna take you back to how we began our service today, Psalm 66. Um, Matt didn't know this, but he's reading this. But Psalm 66 is a psalm here where it ends in verse 20. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. And friends, that's gonna be a theme that we're gonna see flowing out of the lips of David in the midst of all that he is dealing with in particular, as the priests are slaughtered by Saul. So this morning, I wanna begin now by thinking about the fact that Saul is insecure in his security. You say, well, what does that mean? So the news that David is hiding out in the wilderness comes now to Saul 
But rather than allow that news to push Saul to consider God's providence is at work, just like Samuel had told him it would be, and that God's words to him about a rising up neighbor, without, you know, those, those realities, those facts should have moved him to repentance, but rather than move him to repentance, he is now digging his heels in more and more and more. And so we, we see here now Saul, first of all, giving us a show of security, a show of security. Look, if you would, at his demonstration of strength and security. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on, a height, on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. I just, just want you to think through this picture. Saul is sitting high above the city on a mountaintop with his servants, with his spear in his hand. I mean, these, are, these are expressions that communicate power, dominance, Saul is the king. He is the one who's in control. So, think about where Saul is sitting. Sitting on that lofty place. It's Saul who's in the capital, not David. It's Saul who is sitting above it all, not David. No, David is running scared in the wilderness. But I'm here at the capital, on the hill, overlooking everything I am in charge. But also notice what Saul is holding. What's he holding? Spear. See, that spear is the symbol of Saul's response to David, his jealous rage against David. And when Saul has his spear in his hand, you better look out, because he's been throwing it around. All right? Three times, at least, he's been throwing it at David, even at his son, in anger. But it's a symbol of his power. It's a symbol of his strength. And it also represented what forced David to be on the run as a fugitive and an enemy of Saul. But notice who was standing with him. All his servants. All his servants. These were the, these were the, the, the cream of the crop, so to speak. Saul had selected these key warriors to stand around him and to be part of his military entourage. So these were the elite soldiers. They were the, 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 the force recon, okay? They were the delta force of the time, all right? They, they were the, the Navy SEALs, so to speak. They, they, they were that caliber of, of, of soldier around him. But there probably was a little bit of a flashback for Saul, if you remember Back in chapter 14, verse 2, Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree, and around him he has 600 men, and it's his son, Jonathan, that's taking on the Philistines. And at the end of that day, although Saul was on, on a run, the end of that day, Israel had conquered, and they've been victorious. But here now, he's sitting on top of this mountain, on top of the world, in control. The question now is this, who would you rather be with? Saul on the mountain or David running around in the wilderness being pursued? It's a choice we have. And friends, there's a sense in which when, when antichrists are at work, 
we have to ask ourselves, where is real safety? Where is it that God wants us to be? And do we want to be part of that in crowd, whatever that in crowd is? I mean, right now, in crowd might, might be related more to what's going on with entertainment and sports and that kind of stuff. But friends, there are some countries, there are some places around the world where in crowd is a political thing. And if you're not in, you're more likely running. It's a different world. We're not used to it here. But that's what's going on here. If you're part of David's entourage, look out. But friends, this was all a smokescreen. Saul is not secure. He really does not have control of what's going on. It's reeking with the odor of insecurity. Look at verse seven. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you had conspired against me? Oh, here's this great show, but now he's like, what's going on with all these people that are around me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as, as at this day. Let's just think through what are some of the insecurities that are going on here. The first one I'm going to say is this, the insecurity of nepotism. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Notice who the servants are. Saul said to his servants who stood by him, here now, people of Benjamin. Oh, wait a second here. Benjamin was one tribe. How come he doesn't have like a, a mixture of different tribes that are all around him? Because you... You choose your own tribe if you want to maintain your own control and if you're insecure. Because they're your family. They're your people. And there's something that's connected there that is more than simply the nation. But he wasn't the king of Benjamin. He was the king of the whole of the nation. So he had gathered to himself his own people. Now, this is exactly what we find God revealed to the Israelites here when they were asking for a king. Turn, if you would please, to 1 Samuel 8. Because some of the language that's being used here comes right out of this passage. And you want to see the impact of what Saul is actually saying. This is, this is now God revealing to them, this is what's going to happen if you choose this king that you want, this is the kind of king he's going to be. Look at verse 11 of chapter eight. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and be his horsemen and to run before his chariots and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of chariots. So he's gonna pick from all the different tribes your sons, your daughters to do all sorts of different things but you know who's gonna be the cream of the crop? You know who's gonna rise to the top? It's gonna be the Benjamites. Look at verse 14. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. 
See, unlike, unlike David who, who welcomes those in debt, those that are distressed and those that are disenfranchised, that was the beginning of chapter 22, Saul had gathered to himself a select group of men, but they were not a representative of the tribes of Israel. They were all from Benjamin. So he had given them their positions. He had moved them from obscurity to leadership in Israel. Listen, when, when you are given a position of privilege, the person that that privilege is given to will often do things simply to hold on to that position of privilege because they haven't earned it. This is what happens with nepotism. It's what happens when, in the context even of a church, where maybe a pastor or a family raises up one of theirs, well, this person's gonna be in leadership, but maybe that person hasn't proved themselves. Maybe they haven't gone through the process, maybe they don't have the, the gifts and the talents, but because of nepotism, that's what happens. This is happening in the context even here um, with Saul and Israel. And so this is why he chides them. Will the son of Jesse give you fields and vineyards? Because I've done that. I've given you that. Will the son of Jesse make you commanders? No, because I've done that. That's my job. Who is it that raised you up? Is it not in my hand to change that? See, this is right out of 1 Samuel. Saul is doing exactly what God said this king of Israel would do. And this is an elite family group. That's the, the fear of, of nepotism. But now he's questioning them, right? The second fear. The fear of conspiracy. Conspiracy. Saul continues to chide his servants about their plotting against him. But there's nothing in this text that that even sounds like they're contemplating any form of disloyalty. Saul still possesses, uh, or presses his servants, I should say, and chides them for not disclosing to him the covenant relationship that Jonathan had made with David. Now that to me is very, very interesting. What it means is that apparently David and Jonathan did a really good job of actually covering their meetings and the kind of discussions they had. Remember in the last chapter, and this is what he says. Are none of you sorry for me? <laughs> sorry, Saul. We're really sorry for you, Saul, that David is on the run. I mean, think about this. It appears to Saul that even his privileged servants are turning against him. But comfort and news comes to Saul in the person of Doeg the Edomite. Remember last week I said, just file him away. He's there for a reason, file him away. Here he pops up. Where in the world is this guy coming from? But notice what it says. Then answered Dog the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, waiting for his opportunity, waiting for his, his chance to kind of get in. And he hooks David with a number of things here. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So he offers him three things that just draw Saul in. He inquired, first of all. He says he inquired. Now, David went to Ahimelech to get information as to how um, David could destroy Saul, that's what he's saying. He's, he's implying, he's, he's, he's taking what David did and he's twisting it and said, he went to inquire, and the idea is to inquire about how he can defeat you. He 
He's spinning things. He gave him food. He gave him provisions for an army. Ahimelech provided David and his army with provisions so that they could rise up against the king. That's what he's, that's what he's, that's what he's talking about here, okay? And then he gave him the sword of Goliath. I mean, that, that, that trophy. So Doeg is, is embellishing here the truth with his own interpretation because David did go to Ahimelech, did inquire of God, did get some food, did get the sword, but not quite in the same way. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that this is what's going on behind what Doeg is saying? I mean, we, could, we could read those, th- that, those couple of verses there and say, well, isn't he just telling Saul what he saw? And the answer to the question is no. And how do we know? We know because of Psalm 52. So turn to Psalm 52. Don't you love how these psalms help shape our understanding of what's going on in these passages? We're gonna find out David here speaking specifically about this discussion. Here's how Psalm 52 begins, the top part, which by the way is inspired, okay? To the choir master, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Is, is that the same event? The answer is yes. Why do you boast of evil, almighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. See what David is saying? See how David is giving us a picture of what Doeg is actually saying in those words? You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent and he will uproot you from the land of the living. This is just the first part here, but it's very, very clear that David's understanding of what Doeg is doing in that moment is not simply witnessing to the truth. He is being deceitful, he is lying, he's evil, he's causing destruction. There's far more going on in verses nine and 10 and simply giving witness. So Doeg is twisting the truth here to stir up Saul's heart against David and also against Ahimelech. Now, that's the the fact that he is actually insecure in his security. And friends, that's not uncommon. Let me just take you a little bit back in in, in in our history to a man by the name of Saddam Hussein. And do you remember before the Gulf Wars and stuff like that, they would have video footage of, of what was going on in his puppy parliament. And if there was a guy that was opposed to him, he'd call his name out and he'd go, oh, and then he, he'd be afraid because soldiers would come down and take him off and the reports that we had is they take him off in another room and he's done. Oh, there's strength, but it's all strength that is only held together by manipulation and power. And the people that are there are, are serving not because they want to, they're serving out of fear. And friend, that is, that is not security. That is insecurity. So we move now from his insecurity to what I'm calling his delusional, the fact that he is delusional in his certainty. He truly believes what he believes, but he is delusional 
in what he believes. What makes Saul's, Saul delusional is his inability to think clearly with the facts presented to him. His sin of rebellion, selfishness, anger, has caused him to be paranoid about everyone around him. And so he's struggling in three areas. In conspiracy theories, blame shifting, and then he's also struggling by being blind to the facts. Let's look at each one of those in course. First of all, conspiracy theories. He, he, he is growing in his conspiracy theories. He is growing suspicious of what people are thinking and saying. Now listen, he can't trust his family anymore, can he? Because Jonathan has, has you know, united himself with David. Michael, his daughter, she was even deceptive to her father, and her father rebuked her for that. But now he can't even, he can't even trust his own tribe, the Benjamites, because they're not telling him about, about David and what's, what's going on with him. And now he's led to believe that Ahimelech here is also not on his side. So all, all these things are just, are, are just conspiracy theories that are going on in his head. And, and, and in no way, shape, or form do we find in the text here that Jonathan was trying to undo anything in his father or that Michael was. She was just protecting her husband. All the characters that are being talked about here are actually functioning in a right way toward their king. They're having difficulty doing it but they're still honoring and respecting him. And you'll see as we continue on in 1 Samuel that David continues to do that. So he he summons Ahimelech. Look at verse 11. And the king sent to to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and, and all his father's house, and the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And then now we find out the king is accusing Ahimelech and Saul said, here now, O son of Ahitab. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. And he said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait at this day. Let me ask you a question. Is David lying in wait right now? I mean, is he waiting to pounce on Saul? Is that what's going on in the text? No, David is fleeing Isn't it interesting, sometimes the more you believe your lie, the more it actually ends up becoming true because you keep on pushing that button and pushing that button. That's what's gonna happen here. I mean, Saul's gonna go after him and David's gonna try and get away and stuff, but, but he is creating this scenario. But Doeg had done a good job of spinning the truth so that Saul is already turned against Ahimelech. And that's the problem. When you turn away from God and you rebel against his will, your thinking will be affected. You will begin to believe things about people that are not true. We're not gonna go into detail here, but I just want you to file this away. It's called the noetic effect of sin. Not Noah as in the boat, but noetic, the noose, which is the mind. The way sin affects the mind is a really important doctrine in scripture. And if you think that you can continue on sinning and think clearly, biblically, you're mistaken. And what's happening here is is Saul has gone so far away, not even thinking about God, that now his mind is, is blind to the realities of what he's doing, that they are actually sinful. 
And so he's, he's thinking about all these conspiracies. None of them are true. So when you allow yourself to be sinful and your, your mind then gets distorted in its thinking, you can actually be thinking that people don't care about you anymore, that they hate you and they think the worst of you and that they're talking about you behind your back and all this is happening in your mind. It's not a reality, but you're thinking this stuff. And it could very well be and likely is the result of sin that you're not confessing and it's blinding you to the reality of the truth. That's the, the first one, the conspiracy theories. Then there's blame shifting. We move from conspiracy theories to blame shifting. He blames his son for stirring up the heart of David against him. Let, let, let go back to verse eight. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. Where has Jonathan stirred up David against Saul? Hasn't happened. But he's blaming his son. He's blaming his son as being the reason why there is a conflict between him and David. And then he now blames Ahimelech for supporting David. Look at verse 13. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of uh, of God for him so that he is risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. In both of those statements, he's saying that. You've conspired against me so that David is now ready to pounce on me. The problem here is this, Saul can't see that neither David nor Ahimelech are the problem here. That he and his rebellion against God and his anointed is the reason for the misery and insecurity that he's going through. He is the one to blame, he is the reason for the trouble that he is experiencing, he is at fault. But his rage, his rebellion, his fear, and his pride are all blinding him to that reality. Just another, another reinforcing reality that, friends, when we, when we are in sin, we will find ways of pinning responsibility on the shoulder of something else or someone else rather than ourselves. And that's what Saul is doing here. Then also, he's blind to the facts. Saul had accused Ahimelech based on what Doeg the Edomite had reported to him. But notice how Ahimelech responds. I like this guy, I don't know about you. Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Let's just pick apart what he's saying here. I mean, this is the king who's accusing you and here's, here's how he responds. He's speaking the truth. First of all, he speaks to defend David's integrity. He's saying, first of all, David has been a faithful servant to you. He's not sought to take the limelight away from Saul. He's just doing his job as a loyal servant. But when Saul tries to kill David with his spear, David didn't retaliate. He's a faithful servant. You're crying out loud, not only that, he's your son-in-law. You gave him your daughter as a promise if you would go out and defeat the Philistines. The fact that your daughter actually loves him 
is an added bonus for David, but is more of a thorn in the flesh for Saul because he actually wanted to get rid of David in that transaction. He wasn't thinking they would actually get married. But David has married, and he has been a faithful son-in-law. Not only that, he's been the captain of your bodyguard. Let me ask you a question. What kind of people do you surround yourself with if they're your bodyguards? What kind of people are those? Hopefully, trustworthy. The kind of people you can rely on. And if he's the captain of the bodyguard, what does it say about his character? That he has been consistently trustworthy, and Saul knew that, you know, kind of more in a relational way with him. He was a man I can trust. So I mean, Ahimelech is just saying, listen, here's the kind of guy you're talking about. Not only that, the fourth thing is this, he honored you in your house. You have honored him, but he has honored your house. In other words, everything that David has done has brought, has brought accolades to the house of Saul. Those are the facts. But here's the second thing. David he defends, Ahimelech defends now David's visit to Nob. So that's the first thing, the character of David. Then we actually have the visit to Nob. Verse 15, is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. We might get tempted to push down a little bit hard into the words inquired of God for him. Reading into those words, the ideas that Doeg maybe have, was planting in Saul's mind. What was David inquiring God about? How can I defeat Saul? Well, why do people inquire of God when they go to a priest here? They're, they're looking for guidance. They're looking for knowledge. They're looking for confirmation from God through the priests. That was a normal part of the practice. Nothing unusual about that. The point that Ahimelech is making is this. There is nothing different about David's visit to Nob today. He has been there before, and you have been fine with it, so... What's the issue? This is, this is what priests do in the tabernacle. It's part of their responsibility. They inquire of God to find out what's going on. So him looks like, listen, I've done nothing wrong. Then he offers a final defense of his, of his, uh, of his and his family's innocence. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. In other words, I nor my family have had any idea of plotting against you. So please don't accuse us. And certainly don't hold us accountable for something that we have done or have not done. And how does Saul respond to Ahimelech's appeal and presentation of the facts? And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. You've heard the expression before, don't confuse me with the facts. Saul has already condemned him to death. When Doeg gave his distorted witness tale, Saul had already come to a conclusion. He has already convinced in his mind of his truth that even the facts will not change that. And friends, just pause there a little bit because it's very easy for us in the context in which we live to get upset about things that we see are clearly true but society says, well, no, that's not true, and they find other ways to spin it and all that kind of, you find yourself doing that? I mean, when, when someone's like actually committed a crime and they're accountable and responsible for what they've done and the society says, well, you know, when they were a child and they go through all this different stuff, right? It's like, hey, listen, 
these are the facts. Let's deal with the facts. Saul's sinfulness, his anger, his rebellion, his fear, his pride has blinded him to the truth of the facts before him. And all he can do is believe that lie. And it was a lie that was nurtured by Doeg, the Edomite, and his deceptive words. So that's his delusion in his certainty. He is certain, but he is delusional in that certainty. Which then now spills forth from his insecurity and delusion now into his ruthlessness in his authority. Having pronounced guilt and the sentence of death to Ahimelech and his household, Saul now gives the command to have the sentence carried out. But notice what happens. Look at verse 17. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Now that's a pretty powerful statement there. And that's a pretty powerful move by these servants of Saul. But this is not the first time Saul's servants or the people of Israel have refused to carry out an order of execution by the mouth of Saul. 1 Samuel 14, if you remember, Saul in his foolishness, as his armies went out to war, gave a, 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 a vow for not to eat anything until the sundown, and his son, Jonathan, hadn't even heard that and saw some honey and just dipped the end of his spear in there and got some refreshment and from that, and as a result of that, Saul was like, I gotta, can, gotta keep my word, this is what I said, this is what I did. It was a foolish thing for him to do, and he is ready to kill his son. And the people are like, no, you are not. And so here they say, we cannot, and we will not. See, what was going on here is this is, this is the equivalent to what is called the ban, or being devoted to destruction. In fact, this is what happened at the city of Jericho. Remember Jericho? They marched around 13 times and blew trumpets and the walls fell down. But it was, the, it was the command of what happened after that. They were to go into Jericho and they were to kill every living creature except for the ones in particular that God had preserved. I want to read for you. Joshua 6.21, and they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now, what is all that about? When a city is devoted to destruction, it is devoted to destruction by God because of sin. It is a judgment of sin on those people. It is not a whim of God. He's fulfilling his judgment and his needed judgment in the context of carrying out his purposes with those people. And so Saul is commanding for that very same thing to take place. But this wasn't from God. This is from Saul. But of course, Doeg is standing there. The servants won't lift their hand 
But Saul has a heartless friend in Doeg the Edomite, verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed that day 85 persons with, who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both men and women, child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep, and he put them to the sword. My friends, this is, a, this is a, an incredibly low time in the history of Israel. Here's the king of Israel acting so blatantly against God because these were the priests of God. This was the order set in place by God serving at the tabernacle. Here's what we need to think through. The reality is, friends, that God's enemies cannot endure God's people. They cannot, and ultimately, they will not endure God's people. Not sure what I have up here. Um, They're willing to put up with them for a while. But over time, their colors will show. See, there's, there's no neutrality. You're, you're either with them or you're against them. You either make holy war with sin, which is what God calls us to, or you make holy war with righteousness. The enemies of God are enemies of God's people. There may be niceties. You may kind of talk over the fence to your neighbors and all this kind of stuff, but when it comes down to it, those who are opposed to God are going to be opposed to God's people. And that's why, friends, when you look around this world, there is persecution going on. And there's the kind of persecution that seems so radical and so vile. It's because behind all of the atrocities that you hear about is this desire to get to the God of Christianity. So Saul stands in a long line of antichrist because he is opposed to God his people, and the anointed one. He joins Pharaoh with his policies of post-birth control. He joins Balaam and Balak, who sought to curse Israel. He joins Jezebel, who kills all the prophets of the Lord. He joins Antiochus Epiphanes, who sought to destroy Israel and her inhabitants. He stands beside evil men like Diocletian, the Roman emperor, whose edicts were aimed at destroying and wiping out the church. He joins Louis XIV, whose soldiers hunted down and killed the Huguenots. They were the Protestants in France in their hundreds and thousands. He stands with Charles II in his killing times in Scotland against the, again, the Protestants that were there. He joins Stalin in Russia. He joins Hitler in Germany. He joins Mao Zedong in China, and it just goes on and on. They're all ultimately from a historical perspective, antichrists, opposing God, opposing the people of God, opposing the work of God, and opposing the Messiah that God has given to bring salvation. And of course, today we have more antichrists, don't we? They're just as ruthless. In the Middle East, all that's happening with ISIS is just another picture of antichrists against, obviously, God and his people. Go to Nigeria, where Boko Haram and the African Muslim sect are are selectively persecuting Christians, kidnapping these girls and forcing them into marriage or prostitution. Horrible things, guys. 
And yet, we should not be surprised. We should be horrified, we shouldn't be surprised. Because the enemy will not endure God's people. Because God's people cause them to actually question whether or not there's something wrong with them. There's a conscience and they don't like that. So we've seen now the ruthlessness in his authority, but now let's look at the fact that he is also ignorant of God's sovereignty. So we talked about how these, these horrible realities in this passage burst forth now into some glories of his grace. And let's just think through that. First thing I want to emphasize here is this, that God's prophecy is fulfilled. There is a prophecy that is fulfilled by what we have just read in 1 Samuel 22. God's enemies can never, hear this, God's enemies can never overthrow God's word. He will always accomplish what he has promised. His word will never fail. See, what Saul doesn't realize is that his ruthless destruction of the priests at Nob is the fulfillment of God's prophecy through the mouth of Samuel to Eli. That prophecy took place over 50 years earlier. Turn, if you want, back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 23. You'll see it there. See, the whole, the whole of the priesthood, the whole religious system at the beginning of 1 Samuel is in a mess. And God ultimately prophesies that the line of Eli will be destroyed except for one so what we must re- remember or recognize is that the action of Saul against the priests and their families, although was a truly evil affair, they did it of their own volition, but they, when, in doing that, they did not realize that they were accomplishing the outworking prophecy of God. Now how do we deal with this? We can take our cue from Peter. Hold, hold there in a, 1 Samuel 2, but go, go to, if you would please, to Acts chapter two. And I think as we go to Acts chapter two, Peter will give us a little cue as to how we can, how we can kind of make sense of this reality. How, how is it that, that this is something that God has, has decreed and yet it is Saul who is actually accomplishing it? Does it mean that God now is the author of this or is it God has, you know, has, has, has brought this about but he's brought it about through these independent evil people who are just simply doing their will. We'll read it now, Acts chapter two and verse 22 and verse 23. Peter speaking now on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Delivered up means he was handed over. He was put on a cross. He, was, he, he died, all right? He was delivered up. So this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. You killed. By the hands of lawless men. So God is at work. His definite plan. His foreknowledge plan. But you're still responsible because you did this. And that's what he's saying in Acts chapter two. These things go hand in hand. So none of this happened outside of God's allowance and decree. No, it was the definite plan and purpose of God 
but the people, Pilate, all involved were responsible for the death of Christ. And so listen, when bad things happen, not for one minute should you think that God's word has been thwarted. What God promises will be true. He never promises that this life will be without trial or heartache, but he does promise that he will work out his plan in us and through us. Now back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 33. This is what God said to Eli through Samuel the prophet. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be, the altar being the priestly role, right? Um, shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. So he's saying to Eli, all of your descendants, all your prophets that are descendants of you, sorry, priests, all that, that, those priests that are descendants of you will die by the sword except for one. So this verse reminds us that not only God fulfills his prophecy, but hear this, he also preserves a remnant. He always preserves a remnant. Look at verse 20, but one of the sons, now we're back in chapter 22, um, but one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, these are all descendants now of Eli, escaped and fled to, after David, and Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. God always preserves a remnant. You see, the enemies of God cannot destroy the church of God. They cannot, although cause a lot of destruction. But there will always be a remnant. The Antichrist and the Antichrists will never prevail against Christ and his church. Just think through the scriptures together with me. When when the little boys are being drowned by Pharaoh, God is preserving who? Little Moses. When all Israel seems to have bowed the knee to Baal and the false prophets are filling the congregations of Israel, there are still 7,000 people who will not bow the knee to a false god. When Herod applies the final solution of eliminating the baby boys of Bethlehem, one of the toddlers escapes to become the savior of the world. We just go on and on. God always provides a remnant. And so this, is, this should cause some encouragement to us. You know, people who are followers of God will suffer persecution. That will be a reality, but, but they will never ever snuff out the church. Right? The gates of hell will never prevail against the church. The forces of evil will never destroy what God has started in the church. God works with that remnant. Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I know we don't read from that much, but this is powerful, this is helpful. Chapter 25 and verse five, here's what it says. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on the earth to worship God according to his will. As bad as the church gets, there will always be a true church. Now, I want to be that true church, right? But that should be something that gives us confidence to keep pressing on, to keep moving, to, to always be at work for the things of God. So there should always be a church on earth to worship him. And so here we see the preservation in the form of Abiathar. 
and he finds his refuge. Now how do we, how does David deal with all of this? Let's go back to, to Psalm 52, okay? We're gonna bounce back now to Psalm 52, because this is really helpful. All this is happening, all these priests now are dying. This, this, this town has been wiped out. I mean, this was a horrible, horrible sin on Saul's behalf. And how does David deal with this? Look at Psalm 52, beginning at verse six. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his what? His refuge. But trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Isn't that interesting? Just the picture there of Saul's destruction here. He's finding his safety and his refuge in that. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in what? The steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. A number of things he's saying there. Just, let me just kind of boil it down to a couple. Um, he's saying, I put my confidence in the sovereignty of God, first of all. The sovereignty of God. God is at work, accomplishing his purposes, and, and he will not be overrun. He is sovereign. He is in control. He knows what he's doing. And if you've not heard this before, hear it now. There may be chaos on earth, but there's always stability in heaven. Nothing shakes the throne of God except God himself, right? But in what seems chaotic to us, when we're panic-stricken, God is securely sitting on his throne, just carrying out the affairs of his plan, watching over his children, but working through them. Second thing is, he has confidence in the steadfast love of God. And we're not talking here about the mushy-gushy, empty you know, love that's being talked about in our culture. We're talking about the steadfast, consistent love that embraces his children, works for his children, looks out for his children, nurtures his children, protects his children. That is always present. But notice what else that David does here. He says in verse nine, I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. David also surrounds himself with others who are faithful followers of God who are doing the same thing. Why? Because we need each other. Because things happen in life and we panic. We're human. We're, we're created that way and we need the body of Christ to help us through those times of difficulty and crisis. But I also want you to notice God's gospel proclaimed here. Notice the difference between Christ and Antichrist, or David and Saul. Verse 22, and David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. And I think that David is saying that beating his chest. I think what David is actually saying here is, listen, I, you know, I, I should have seen that my presence at the, the house of God would have, would have ended with this because of how Saul is behaving, and he's just, he's heartbroken at the situation. And so he's taking whatever responsibility he can to say, yes, you know, it's because of me going there. And it's not that Abiathar did anything wrong, it's really not that I did anything wrong, but the fact that I was there brought this suffering to them, and so I'm crushed by that. But all along in the story, Saul is not taking responsibility for anything. 
He's passing it off on everyone else. So, so David says in verse 21, and these are just sweet gospel words. Just think about this. Remember David is a foreshadowing of Christ. He says to Abiathar, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. What does Jesus say to his disciples? If the world hates you, hated me first. But follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. I have a mansion prepared for you in heaven. Follow me. Come with me. Be with me. I know life can be chaotic. I know some of you have gone through persecution this week in in different forms, but it's because of your identity with Christ, and you will likely, if you are a true follower of Christ, experience that. And he says, come. With me, you will be in safekeeping. I want us to go back to 1 John 2 and verse 18, and I want to close out with this. And I think this is helpful for us. It says in that passage that Antichrist will come. I want to add to God's word here. Appropriately, not inappropriately. Let's read verse 18. Children, it's the last hour and you have heard that, that Antichrist is coming. All right, we know that. So now many Antichrists have come. You can just put in parentheses. And Gone. Antichrist come, but they go. I am coming, and I am staying. I am the Messiah. I'm the King of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. These Antichrists come and go because they can only do so much because all of them are under the controlling hand of God. But I come and I stay. When I come and I stay, I'm staying with my people. If you're one of my followers, I'm staying with you. Lord, help us today to recognize the reality of these antichrists that are displayed for us, Lord, through this example of Saul. But Lord, help us also to have confidence that not only do they come and go, but what drives us and what helps us through that is the knowledge of your sovereignty, the beauty of your steadfast love. And Lord, the confidence that what you have started in us, you will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we place ourselves in your care. We ask, Lord, for strength to endure whatever it is that you have called us to face with your strength, with your word, by your Holy Spirit. But Lord, we long for that day when we'll be in your presence. And whether we are running in the wilderness, Lord, we know that with you, we are safe. We know that we have a God who shelters us with your mighty wings. Help us today, Lord, to to grasp that, to, to live that out, to ponder that. And Lord, just to be in awe of who you are.
thank you, Lord, for your goodness in your name. Amen.